You are listening to the Progress Your Health Podcast, episode number five. Welcome to the Progress Your Health Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Robert Mackey and Dr. Valerie Davidson, a husband and wife team who specialize in bioidentical hormone replacement therapy and functional medicine. They're here to help you lose weight, balance hormones, and age gracefully. It's their mission to motivate, educate, and empower you to take your health to the next level. And now your hosts, hormone experts, Dr. Mackie and Dr. Davidson. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Progress Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Mackie. And I'm Dr. Valerie Davidson. And today we're going to talk about weight gain, weight loss, insulin resistance, and why it's so hard to lose weight and keep it off. Right. Well, for those of you that have listened to the Dr. Rob show in the past, one thing that we did talk a lot about was a term called insulin resistance. I think when you're discussing this whole idea, and you, you and I were doing some planning before this episode, and that idea still keeps coming up about it being a calorie issue. You know, simple math, calories in, calories out. And you know, a lot of the research that is coming out, uh, that has been coming out over the last several years, doesn't really agree with that idea that it, you know, that it's not just simple math. Oh my goodness! If it were simple math, that'd be so amazing. Calories in, calories out. You just cut out your calories, three hundred calories, you know, here and there, and all of a sudden your weight's down. But do you know how many people that we see, and I'm sure a lot of people listening, say, you know what? I've cut down my calories, and I've overexercised, and I notice that if I lose a little weight, it certainly don't can't maintain it. Or, or I have some patients that tell me that they actually work out really hard, cut back their calories to almost nothing on their, you know, their little apps on their phone. And then they say, I haven't lost one pound. And I tell them that's because I really wish it were calories in, calories out. Yeah. You know, that works like in physics, like in a physics lab or, you know, in a vacuum. The human body is quite a bit different than that. There's a lot of stressors and factors that kind of play into that. And hormones, as we always talk about, that's kind of our niche and our forte. Hormones play a huge role, whether you're going to gain weight, lose weight, maintain weight. You know, it is a very complex process. And honestly, one that not everyone has figured out. We keep talking about it just because there's, we're always learning more. The calories in calories out argument simplifies it. But let's be honest, the body is way too smart for just to be that simple. Yeah, like you said, it's not a calorie problem. It's really more of a hormonal problem because we have lots – I mean – Doing calorie restriction gives you some kind of structure, so at least you have some sort of structure to go by. I mean, people love structure, but over time, how many people have gone on a diet to only gain weight, you know, six months down the road? Yeah, sure. If you graph the, some of that, um, you know, some of that information, you know, put it on a, on a graph over time, and there's actually some research to show that people lose weight in the first six months to a year, and they gain it back the second six months to two years because of that compensatory mechanisms, which we're probably not going to get into too much right now. We'll get into some of those later. There's some other episodes that we went over the old Dr. Rob show episodes where we actually kind of dived into some of those things. And because we've been absent for so long, we figured this is a good idea to to kind of revisit some of these ideas. And partially because I just read a new book, actually, it's called The Obesity Code by Dr. Jason Fung, who is by, by trade or by specialty is a nephrologist who was dealing with a lot of diabetic people where, you know, they weren't really getting any better. And the reason why that makes sense is that 
Diabetes is the number one reason why people across the country, both probably the United States and Canada, have to go through dialysis. The diabetes, the elevated blood sugar and insulin, ends up just ruining their kidney function. So a large part of his patient base end up being diabetics. And you know, part of that process was to manage their weight, get their weight under control. And his new book, The Obesity Code, talks a lot about something that we've mentioned many times, which is the insulin resistance as the kind of the underpinning, the main focus of why people struggle with the whole weight loss thing, like you mentioned. Yes, absolutely. Insulin resistance. And I know on the Dr. Rob show that there was a lot about insulin and there should be a lot about insulin because insulin is probably the, would you call it like the bull in the China shop? Insulin seems to cause so many problems regardless of age, gender, you know, family, genetic dynamics is insulin is, is that's, that's the heavy hitter. And what is insulin? Insulin is a hormone that's secreted from the pancreas. And why is insulin secreted from the pancreas? In response to glucose. So everybody's always fixated on their glucose and their sugar levels. But really, honestly, they should be fixated on their insulin levels because insulin is the only hormone that stores fat. You no other hormone stores fat except for insulin, which is a side note, but insulin like we had talked about, secreted from the pancreas, if it's secreted in large amounts, that is kind of a precursor for diabetes type 2. Yeah, I'm not really sure why. And I'm still, you know, I still kind of scratch my head. You know, you and I go to these conferences and, you know, very, what I would consider to be very cutting edge, very progressive as far as looking at the body, looking at physiology, looking at ways to solve these issues. There people do talk about insulin. They do talk about insulin resistance. They talk about metabolic syndrome. But out there in the conventional world, you and I have an office in California and we deal with a lot of people from Kaiser and no, none of the doctors from Kaiser ever talk about insulin, never test insulin, never even acknowledge that it is even part of the problem. Whether someone's got PCOS or they got fatty liver disease or they got some of these other things that are all, we'll get to that in a second, that are all insulin resistant based, uh, it's almost like they ignore that part and they still keep doing the same thing over and over, which is providing, prescribing medications that are basically glorified band-aids as opposed to going after, you know, like you just said, the really core issue, which is that insulin resistance piece. Well, you know, like you and I both know, it always comes down to medications. What medications are going to lower the blood glucose so that it's under, you know, 100, you know, under 99, and then they're happy and they're on their way. But, you know, I'll even speak for my own family members, you know, they're their glucose is in the 90s, but you check out their fasting insulin is up there in the 40s and you need a fasting insulin, granted under 20, but really truly under nine. So insulin is the big issue when you're looking at weight loss and weight gain. Because if you look at a diabetes type one, you know, usually diabetic type ones are diagnosed when they're in their teens, maybe their 20s, very randomly in their 30s. But diabetics type one don't have any insulin. The beta cells in their pancreas are dysfunctional, And they don't secrete insulin. So if you eat a cracker or some sugar, their blood sugar goes up. There's no insulin to allow that glucose to get into the cell. And so these diabetic type 1s are super skinny, but they have huge levels of glucose, which is completely different from diabetics type 2. They should have a completely different name between diabetes type 1 and diabetes type 2 because they're two completely different I don't even want to call them diseases, but disorders. So somebody with diabetes type 2 is truly somebody that is insulin resistant to the exponential 10th degree. Yeah, I'm, I, you know, I, probably they, though, I, I'd have to look into this. I'm not even really sure exactly when both of those conditions were 
named originally. And I think at, at the time it seemed like it made sense, right? Because they both had high blood sugar problems. But as you just mentioned, they are two completely different situations. One is the absence of insulin. Your body doesn't create it at all. The other one is an abundance of insulin. So type 2 diabetes, which is the one everybody talks about and the one that causes all the issues, you know, for the most part, at least in the United States and other industrialized countries, it is about having too much insulin and the body loses the, it basically boils down to not a blood sugar problem, but an insulin signaling problem. There's hormones are basically ways for your body to communicate from, you know, different cells and different organs, which we'll also talk about here in a second. Over time, as your body produces more and more insulin, the cells in your body that are, or the tissues in your body that are responding to that insulin lose the ability to communicate. And when that happens, then this, the blood sugar doesn't get in your cell and now you have big problems. So again, I still kind of scratch my head partially because in medicine, I think things have, things do progress all the time in medicine, right? Surgeries, new devices, new drugs. But as far as the practice of medicine, I think it tends to be very slow that doctors don't innovate or don't do new things. They just keep doing what they've been doing for sometimes years, if not decades. And the ones who suffer are, you know, the patients, the patients are not, you know, getting better. And even still, I still, I'm kind of dumbfounded why this insulin resistant thing. And that's honestly, that's why we talk about it so much on the Dr. Rob show. Now we're talking about it now is because it is really at the core of a lot of the things that we see in our offices on a, on a, on a daily basis. Yeah, for example, I mean, there's a lot of other hormones that come into play. I do feel like insulin is the, I guess you could say the fulcrum of all the other hormones coming into play when you're looking at any kind of diabetes type 2 manifestation or just weight gain in general or fatigue or other, you know, there's a lot of other um, disorders and diseases that can manifest from insulin that I'm completely going on a tangent with, but back up, back up. So with Insulin, you know, I have a lot of patients that also that come in and they want to talk about leptin. You know, leptin's real hot right now. Everybody's talking about leptin and leptin resistance, and they'll be like, "Hey, doc, have you ever heard of leptin resistance?" And and absolutely, because leptin is a huge issue that has to do with weight gain and weight loss. But I really feel like leptin is led or ruled by insulin. So leptin is a hormone. It's truly a true hormone that is released from your fat cells because our fat cells, whether they're in our stomachs, on our behinds, or wherever they're at, fat cells are like their own endocrine gland. They have little minds of their own and they secrete all different kinds of hormones and proteins and one of them is leptin. And if somebody needs, you know, you know high leptin means that high leptin means I'm full, right? Yeah, right. It basically communicates with the brain and basically shuts your appetite off. Your fat tells your brain that you're full or you have a certain level of satiation or satiety. Uh, and then that, you know, that process just continues. So you didn't, don't end up overeating too much. Yeah. So I have, let's say I have, you know, a lot of fat on my body and I eat a nice big meal and that the leptin released from those fat cells is high, which is supposed to tell me that I'm not really hungry. So then I would reduce down my appetite, reduce down the intake that I'm saying, having, so that I would have a set point for a certain weight. So, you know, because the body really doesn't want to be overweight. It doesn't want to be underweight. It wants to have a nice sort of set point of health. But there is a something which I'm sure a lot of you have probably heard of, read about, is leptin resistance, where I eat some food. My 
fat cells are releasing a ton of leptin, which leptin is actually a signal. Leptin travels up to the hypothalamus in your brain and tells your brain, hey, listen, I'm not hungry anymore. But if I, let's say I have a lot of leptin, but for some reason in leptin resistance is your brain doesn't listen to that leptin signal. So I eat a nice huge meal, but I feel hungry. And that's because the leptin is too high, which is okay, but the leptin isn't turning, telling the brain to say, hey, I'm not hungry. So if anything, especially in obesity, is they're, they're, they should be full, but they're really starving. Right, right, right. Well, in some ways, the same thing is happening. As the body is not responding to insulin, the organs and the tissues of the body stop responding to insulin. The brain stops responding to the leptin. So you don't get that appetite shutoff signal anymore. It's just your appetite's on all the time. So on my on on our intake forms, I have this simple question there: How many times a day are you hungry? And a lot of times you can usually kind of tell, but in a lot of cases, people will you know write there the hungry all the time, always hungry, hungry you know every you know constantly. That is usually a very simple indication that someone has a certain level of leptin resistance. Now, I will say insulin can can do the same thing, right? Because insulin is an appetite initiator. It makes you hungry. One of the old episodes Charlie and I did way back when, we used to talk about the Thanksgiving effect. That's where people at Thanksgiving time, they eat this huge meal, kind of like what you just said a second ago. They eat this huge meal. They go take a nap. They're in, the, they're in that food coma for an hour. They wake back up and now they're hungry all over again. How can you really be hungry when you've just eaten 2,000 calories? You know, um, that in some ways that's your body's attempt at survival because, you know, it's kind of a feast or famine idea. If there's a feast, then just keep eating. But in reality, in our very food abundant world, that becomes our detriment because now the more you have, the more you want. You can't shut it off necessarily that easy. And because we have the access to sugar, fat and salt like we do, now it's a, it's a very slippery slope and it becomes a problem really quick. Yeah, exactly like you're saying is insulin is more of a short acting hormone where the leptin is a long acting hormone. So somebody with a lot of adipose or fat tissue is going to have a lot of leptin where somebody where, you know, like, like you said, I, I do tend to eat a lot for Thanksgiving. I will put that out there. I probably eat enough for about three people and I do take a nap and then I wake up and I'm ready for more. And that's the insulin. That's not my leptin. That's the insulin. I've seen you eat a lot of meals and you've never eaten enough for three people. Yes, I have. <laughs> no, yes, I have. You have not. <laughs> maybe enough you, pumpkin pie. Okay. Well, maybe the pumpkin pie. I do like the pumpkin pie. <laughs> now, one thing that, you know, again, we're talking about insulin resistance. Don't want to sound like a broken record. We've talked a lot about it before on the Dr. Rob show, just because we do think it's kind of a core issue. Dr. Fung's book, you know, really was kind of validation that you know, that he sees this in clinical practice as well and wrote a whole book about it. I think that it's, you know, I think it's good. Someone's paying attention at least to what I think is, and I'm sure if you asked him, you know, you know, as well, that it's like the medical disaster of the 21st century. This is, you know, pretty much every problem that 80% of the people that walk in our doors or his door or any other doctor's door in the country is dealing with some manifestation of insulin resistance. And now let's go through a list the question is, well, how do I know if I'm insulin resistant or not, right? We're telling people right now that their doctors are not really, they're not really looking out for insulin resistance. They might say metabolic syndrome, but that's usually based on their cholesterol and a few other things. 
in my opinion, insulin resistance is metabolic syndrome. Uh, just that there's some other criteria that usually defines if someone has metabolic what's syndrome. Meta- what's metabolic syndrome? So again, any syndrome in the body, and I'm not telling you, I'm telling everybody else, every syndrome in the body is just really just a collection of signs and symptoms. Okay, Signs are something you can measure. Symptoms are subjective things that you can feel. And metabolic syndrome has a very specific level of criteria. You have a waist circumference greater than you know a certain number of inches. You have an elevated blood glucose. You have an elevated blood pressure. You have elevated cholesterol, triglycerides, and there's a few other things. You can find the criteria online very easy. And where does that metabolic syndrome come from? Like we said, insulin. Right. Yeah, it's an insulin. Too much. Yeah, insulin it's a, over a long period of time. Yeah. Right. It's an insulin problem that's creating all those things. So there's a list that I tell I talk to all my patients about. So weight gain. You know, if you've gained a substantial amount of weight, you're insulin resistant. Mm. High cholesterol, that is a insulin problem, not a eating too many egg yolks problem. That in is, particular, the triglycerides on your cholesterol, not the low density lipoproteins, but the triglycerides. Well, yeah, I think uh, triglycerides and increased triglycerides, increased total, increased LDL, and possibly a reduction to the HDL. When that HDL gets too low, that's also a, a little bit of a negative risk factor. Then, of course, high blood pressure. High blood pressure is not a sodium problem, at least by what we consume. It is elevated because of insulin. A female issue that we'll talk about in a later episode, polycystic ovarian syndrome, which affects you know 10 to 15% of the female population, that's an insulin problem. That usually manifests as a female hormone problem, but is really caused by having too much insulin. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, that is of right now estimates that it affects roughly about 30 to 35 million people in the country. That is also an insulin problem. Uh, type 2 diabetes, as you've already mentioned, that is, you know, kind of the, the, the pinnacle or the holy grail or the, the gold standard for, you know, insulin resistance. Coronary heart disease, dementia, Alzheimer's, and then certain types of cancers, particularly breast cancer and colon cancer. Those are the two types of cancers in the country that you know, that have the highest mortality rate, you know, unfortunately. And you and I dealing with female hormones all the time, you know, everyone's afraid of estrogen, but they really should be more afraid of of insulin as being more of a cancer causative agent. And when you're talking about weight gain, you know, we have a lot of patients and a lot of people listening is insulin weight gain is in the stomach. Sure, we get a little bit on our bum, we get a little bit on our, you know, the backs of our arms, a little bit on our back. But if you're looking at insulin weight gain or insulin resistance weight gain, it's all in the front by your belly button. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I think that in our stressful world, right, it's a combination of, which we haven't even mentioned yet, <laughs> uh, we did on the last ep- or two episodes ago when we talked about the adrenals, cortisol and insulin play have a very kind of delicate balance or a, a dance with each other. And you could say the same thing, you know, that weight around the middle, which for women is very unusual, right? Women typically do not put weight around the middle. Men will usually get the beer belly, but women, like you said, it's usually around the hips and thighs. You know, it's both a insulin and cortisol weight distribution pattern. No, for women, I have lots of women that are very unhappy with their stomachs. I've always had such a flat stomach, they say, which they have. And they say, why don't I have a flat stomach? It's not just insulin by itself. It's insulin and cortisol combined. Mm -hmm. So, of course, cortisol goes up with stress. Everybody knows, you know, I'm all stressed out and I have the cortisol. But you throw in some insulin and then what what raises insulin? You know, we've always talked about this before. Fat and butter will not raise insulin. You know, you can eat a whole tub of butter and your insulin is not going to go up and you're not going to gain necessarily any weight. It's when you combine that with a carbohydrate. Carbohydrates raise up glucose, which raise up insulin. You throw in some stress. 
and you're stressed out, maybe you're not sleeping well, your cortisol's elevated. So cortisol and insulin, it all goes to the stomach. Yeah, right. And that is, you know, what you just described there, I think is what the majority of women that are in perimenopause, menopause are struggling with. Their female hormones are declining, their cortisol and insulin are going up, and and now their body's changing, even though their lifestyle might not have changed, it might not have changed that much. But their weight either doesn't go down no matter what they do. Like you said, no matter how much they exercise, whatever, they're usually not sleeping very well, which also decreases their insulin sensitivity. And, you know, they're just, they're just frustrated because their body's not cooperating like it used to. So you had mentioned something before about, you know, talking about other tissues in the body that are responsive to insulin or some of the other hormones that cause weight gain or weight loss. Yeah. So if, if we wanted to, and again, uh, Dr. Fung kind of talks about this in his book a little bit, and we had already talked about leptin in the brain. So if you really wanted to, you know, kind of simplify this a little bit, we're talking about three basic organs. We're talking about the liver, we're talking about the muscle tissue, and we're talking about the brain. When you go on a diet of any sort, whether it's a low calorie, low carb, high fat, whatever, most of those uh, approaches over the years, especially in a research setting, have been in some way, shape, or form, a, a type of caloric restriction. Okay? In the short term, that's fine. That will lower your insulin burden initially, but it doesn't necessarily have an impact on the brain, you know, whatever. And the hypothalamus, the term, you, I think you mentioned it just a short bit ago, this idea of called, what's called set point, that because the body is secreting so much insulin over time, the brain becomes altered. And now if you're 200 pounds, you go down to 130, your body wants to get back to 200 pounds. So you might lose a bunch of weight in that first you know, six months to a year, but now your body is going to do whatever it needs to do to get back to that 200 pound mark. And how many people that are listening to this have lost weight and gained it all back in a, in a certain amount of time? The failure rate, the last research that I saw, the failure rate for most diets is like 80%, right? 80% of people gain their weight back. And that's not necessarily always because that they're, they failed, right? That's in some ways the body's, the body's ability to, or the body's attempt at compensating in a particular fashion, which is based on mainly caloric restriction. That's why, you know, that's why it just doesn't work, you know, over the long term. As I had mentioned about the leptin resistance. So leptin, you know, it comes up and then, hey, I, my body is supposed to be, feel full and then I just go on my way and I'm not hungry. But somebody with leptin resistance that has insulin resistance, they might have eaten a meal, but they're still hungry. And like, like you said, you know, honestly, over time, willpower is not going to win over biology. If I'm hungry all the time, I'm going to eventually eat. So that's why people end up gaining the weight. So th the goal is to reduce insulin, I guess you could say foods that increase insulin so that you can decrease your leptin and your insulin resistance. But now that's easier said than done because most of the time when you feel like you're starving, you want to eat foods that are high in insulin or right. actually that would cause your insulin to go up high. Yeah, right. When you're, like you said, when you're stressed after a long day, you come home, the last thing you really want to do is eat a plate of broccoli, right? It just doesn't work that well. And plus you can't really sustain yourself on broccoli anyways. It just doesn't have enough of the nutrients that we need, both from a calorie perspective and from a micronutrient standpoint, vitamins and minerals and free fatty acids and everything else. So it becomes a very catch-22 dilemma. You can get the weight to come off initially because you reduce it down. But if you do that for too long of a period of time, you know, like I said, it's, it's going to, 
it's going to sabotage your results long term. Well, not that wasn't exactly what I was thinking is sure, yeah, nobody's going to eat a plate of broccoli, but let's say you come home from work and it's been a long day and you're stressed out and you're tired. You're right, you can have a, you know, a little bit of grilled chicken, some broccoli, maybe a small little bit of starch or some sweet potato, but truly when someone comes home and they're insulin resistant, they're leptin resistant and they're tired and they're stressed out, they're not going to eat that. They're going to drive through a drive-thru or grab a pizza or eat some carbs or eat some pasta or eat something that raises up the insulin again, makes them feel good. But then, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's not really furthering it. So what, you know, what we're working on together is we're actually working on a way to help people bring down their insulin by changing the foods that they're eating without making it so darn hard. Yeah, right. You know, you're, you're totally right. And that's, I kind of meant the same thing. Like after a long day, yeah, it's easy to go to the drive-thru. It's easy to go to a restaurant. It's easy because your brain wants you to eat those things that you probably shouldn't because then it just perpetuates the cycle. You eat something, your insulin goes way up, your blood sugar goes way up. And now that, that vicious cycle is is set further set in motion. And unfortunately, when that happens, the body produces more and more insulin on top of insulin on top of insulin. So it becomes a huge issue to be able to undo that. And that's the question, right? That's what we're kind of talking about. How do you fix that? How do you circumvent that to get it to go the other direction? So eventually over time, your body starts to communicate with insulin better on a brain level, on a liver level, on a muscular level, you know, that, you know, that's where you get actually long-term success. So you can actually lose the weight and then be able to maintain that over time. You know, that's a, you know, that's a tall order. That's easier said than done. How many people, like I, like I said a minute ago, how many people have failed on their quote unquote diet? You know, millions and millions of people. I'm sure every January people go on this New Year's resolution idea. They're going to lose some weight. And, you know, a lot of them probably do. And then more time goes by and no matter what they do, it's almost like they have to work harder over time to be able to keep that weight off. And then eventually it just, you know, they just can't do it. They just can't maintain it. That's because they need to change the neurohormones in their brain. So we're talking about leptin and insulin, which are hormones that are coming from insulin from the pancreas, leptin coming from your fat tissue. But what we need to change is we need to change that, you know, a lot of the neurohormones that are coming from our brain that dictate us to want to have some of those comfort foods. So if we could change those a little bit, it could probably offset our, you know, our struggle to want to you know, to want to technically eat the comfort foods. So it's easy to have that willpower for the month of January, but it doesn't last long because of the neurohormones that we want to change. And that's a whole nother probably podcast is, is we work a lot with amino acids, trying to change up the um, neurohormones in our brain, like the serotonin and the dopamine. There's a whole process with that. So our goal is to work with people so that we can try to reduce down the, some of those cravings because willpower doesn't work. And trust me, you don't want to go on fentramine. Fentramine is a whole nother tangent of, you know, a bag of worms that you don't want to go in. Sure, it's going to suppress your appetite like you're on speed, but it, you know, it changes your brain chemistry. And eventually you ask anybody that's been on fentramine, they don't keep the weight off. No. And fentramine is a, you know, it is a neurotoxin, you know, because as you mentioned, speed, it's basically an amphetamine. You cannot overstimulate the brain like that for too long without having repercussions, you know, down the road. And honestly, fentramine works for a short period of time. And then it usually either stops working, meaning you don't get the appetite suppressing benefit, not to mention some of the other collateral damage, you know, some of the side effects that go along with it. You know, so you're right. How do you fix? uh, So, 
really what is, when we're talking about weight gain and obesity, is it a insulin problem? Is it a brain problem? Is it a leptin problem? You know, the debate kind of continues. It really depends on who you're talking to. Honestly, I think it's a combination of all of them. Oh, all of them. And then there's more hormones like ghrelin that we didn't get into and adiponectin, which, you know, it's a huge, um, I guess you could say it, there's so much more information to this than we can pack in on one podcast. So we're definitely going to go on and further this information for you all to learn. But you know, we've talked a lot, especially today, about insulin resistance and a little bit of leptin resistance. So when we're thinking about insulin resistance, you're probably resonating with some of the things that we're saying, but you might not be completely sure, am I truly insulin resistance? And the sure way to know if you're insulin resistance is to actually do a blood test. Well, yeah. And that's a, you know, that's why we're talking about that too, because as we mentioned earlier, conventional medicine, doctors, primary care, even endocrinologists are not really set up to test for that. We've had people a few times, both clinically and on the podcast, ask, how do you test for insulin resistance? And there is, isn't really one test that does that. Now, we put together a panel that I think is a way to um, look at what we call modifiable risk factors like cholesterol. That's one way to get some information. And then combining what they call a glucose tolerance test for those mothers out there that have gone through the whole pregnancy process. You've done a glucose tolerance test. That's where they give you the sugary stuff, which is 100 grams of glucose. And then then they test your blood every hour after that. Now, the key piece to that, which is the part that's never done, is adding on an insulin to that test. You do a glucose tolerance test plus an insulin. So you do an insulin fasting. You do it at one hour, two hour, three hours, four hours to see the rise. If you graph it out, you see the rise and fall to someone's insulin based on a meal, right? Granted, the sugary stuff they give you isn't really much of a meal. It's pretty horrid, you know, for the most, I've never done it, but I've just heard people, you know, people tell me that it's not really the best experience in the world. However, what you see is you see someone's insulin in response to food, in response to glucose. And that is where, and then of course, over time, one, two, three, four hours, you see how that insulin level comes back to normal. By four hours, someone's insulin should be back to a fasting level. For someone who's insulin resistant, it gets pushed out further and further and further. And the longer that that insulin gets pushed out, the more insulin resistant someone is. Now, when you look at it on a graph, it actually makes a lot more sense. But What do you mean by pushed out? The amount of time that it takes to come back to a fasting so, level. So after a few hours, the insulin's high still, but the glucose is actually a little bit lower normal. Yeah. And, and for someone who's really insulin resistant, that blood glucose could actually be low. Like after a couple hours, after three to four hours there, they could have that, re, that kind of rebound hypoglycemia that everyone experiences. Everyone thinks it's a low blood sugar problem, but it's always caused by because having a high insulin. Insulin is high. Yeah, Got it. Yeah. Yeah. That's why if you look at someone and they're, let's say, you know, a gentleman, he's, you know, 275 pounds and he gets his, his glucose, fasting glucose back and it's at 72, right? That guy should not have a fasting glucose of 72. You know that it's being dropped down because of insulin. His insulin level is really, really high. And I've had quite a few people, they, they, their doctor says, oh, your insulin looks great. Or your, excuse me, your blood sugar looks great. It's in the seventies, whatever. You know, that's a very, ambiguous number. It doesn't tell you what you think it does. It seems like it's good on the surface, but when you look at that person and their BMI is greater than 30, you know, they have some weight to lose. You know that that number is not right because they don't look at the insulin that goes along with that. The test that we're just talking about, looking at insulin over a period of, you know, three to five hours gives you that other piece of information because you and I both do fasting insulins all the time. And 
in someone you'd expect to have a high fasting insulin, sometimes it's really not that high. Oh, no. My dad. Remember we did, we did the insulin and glucose on my dad a few years ago? My dad had a normal glucose level probably what was like four or five years ago, but his insulin was like 40-something. Yeah, yeah. So his blood glucose was 97, 98, something like that. And of course, because you and I always his do- His insulin was like in the 40s. Yeah, it was, 40, it was 46.7. But because his doctor didn't think the insulin was important, but the glucose was so important, he thought it was fine. And of course, you know, looking at, you know, I love my dad and he thinks I'm his kid and he doesn't want to really listen to anything his kid has to say. You know, he he just lived with that. And now here we are in 2016 and he's technically diabetic and he's on, you know, metformin. Yeah, right. Where he had an opportunity four or five years ago, if his doctor was conventionally minded primary care physician, if he would have been paying attention. Now, granted, your dad's a very big man. He's six four, but he has a he's got that proverbial big belly, like a lot of men do. You can just kind of take a look and say, hey, there's an issue here. Not to mention looking at cholesterol, looking at blood pressure, looking at all these other factors. Which that- his cholesterol and his blood pressure were great. Well, right. I mean, that's maybe one area, but you have this but, big... You, which made, and his glucose was great, so it made him ignore that insulin. The insulin, you know, we should have, fo- I mean, you know, coulda, coulda, shoulda, woulda, hindsight's twenty twenty, whatever. But, you know, that's that's the thing is you can catch somebody from going into diabetes type 2 by catching their insulin first. Yeah, right. Or if there's one of those conditions that we already mentioned earlier, the fatty liver, the PCOS, you know, one of those things that are not quite so overt as type 2 diabetes, you know, even in diabetes treatment, the goal is still to focusing on reducing blood sugar. They're still missing the boat when someone actually has diabetes, they're still going after the wrong thing. That's why no one really ever gets any better. They just end up with more complications the more time that goes by. So you're right. Your dad is a perfect example of that. His fast. Now, for those of you that want to, we need to understand a little bit about reference range. The reference range for insulin is basically 2 to 25, depending on the lab. You go to Quest or LabCorp. We think, and a lot of doctors like us think, that it should be certainly less than 10, if not even less than 5, right? So it should be in the single digits for a fasting insulin. You and I see them all the time. They're in the, you know, 13s, 14s, 15s. 20s. You know, or low 20s. Certainly we get or to Or my the, dad in the 40s. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, that's one of the, you don't see them that high very often. You really don't. But when you do, there is a doctor, his name is Dr. Kraft, who was a pathologist, I think back in the 70s or something. And he looked at 14,000 insulin glucose tolerance tests, kind of exactly what we're describing, 14,000 of them, and came up with basically six different patterns of what your blood sugar and insulin will do. And there's, of course, a normal one and there's five dysfunctional ones. And, you know, two of them basically are occult diabetes. You have, you can diagnose someone with diabetes well before they ever have major blood sugar problems. And that's exactly what we're talking about with your dad. If his doctor would have paid any attention to his insulin level, maybe something could have been done a long time ago, stressing the fact, hey, we need this number to come down. And even using that as a baseline, setting that, okay, here's where it is. And in one to five years, now that number is, you know, back, you know, even below 20, it would have been a great success. Certainly below 15 or, you know, it might've been hard for your dad to get it down to the single digits. It's probably even a lot harder now to get it down to the single digits just because more time has gone by, but now he wouldn't be technically a, you know, a diabetic at all. And that was a fasting insulin. So you think about, you do a test that has a fasting insulin, fasting glucose, but then you take that, you know, the yucky syrupy stuff you have to drink, and then you do it another, you know, four 
blood tests after that, you're truly going to find out if you are insulin resistant or not. There's no, you know, am I tired after eating? Do I have belly fat? You know, is it running my family? You will know 100% for sure if you have insulin resistance or not. Yeah. And you and I don't really make people do that very often, but I think for this context and what we're talking about, especially if you got fatty liver or PCOS, or if you already have diabetes, you already have a diagnosis of diabetes, probably not because you know, you're already diabetic at that point. You don't really need that confirmation. If you're having trouble losing weight, the PCOS people and the fatty liver people are the ones that always have trouble losing weight. Why? Because they're insulin resistant. It's not a calorie problem like we're talking about. It's way deeper than that. And you can't fix it just by you know eating less and as everybody says exercising more it just doesn't work that way you have to significantly change the hormonal landscape reduce the inflammation that is caused by having that hormonal situation and then of course you know over time your body regains its insulin sensitivity over time, which which means that that communication, remember like in grade school, everyone plays like the telephone game. You got the, you know, piece of string and a cup on one side and a cup on the other side. That communication needs to improve in order for the body to respond in a proper fashion. And we had talked about, you know, not only the insulin and the glucose, but the leptin. So you can do a blood leptin test. There truly is a blood leptin test through pretty much every single lab available in this country. So if somebody wanted to check their leptin. There is no reason why they can't other than perhaps their doctor might not want to test it. Yeah. Or their insurance might not pay for it. Yes. Their insurance might want to pay for it. If you want to test your leptin or that insulin, we have a weight loss panel one available through our website, or I don't know how we have that available. Yeah. You just go to the show notes or you can go to the shopping cart itself and just look up lab tests and it'll, there'll be a, a weight loss panel there. And we put it together just because it is challenging to to officially look at what needs to be looked at. And when you just do fasting numbers, you do fasting blood sugar, fasting insulin, sometimes you do not get the full story. But when you do the multiple insulin samples after the the glucose consumption, now you see what you know their three and four hour response to food is. And now you can see, do they have the, on a graph, are those, is that time pushed out where that insulin's coming? Because then what you're doing, in a sense, every meal you're going, you're putting insulin on top of insulin on, on top of insulin. And that's where that vicious cycle begins to increase or kind of be, it gets uh, set in motion. And then it's really hard to undo that, but it's not going to happen just through, you know, going on a diet and exercising a bunch. Okay. So that's just about going to wrap it up for this episode. Again, this is a really, you know, really complicated topic. We haven't done an episode in a while. So we figured this would be a good time to kind of get back into the swing of things, talking about this issue. You know, this is something that you and I are both very passionate about. We see it all the time. And also we see the deficiencies out there in the medical landscape. People really need this information in order to be successful. Absolutely. And, you know, I know that we have a lot of information in a short amount of time. This is just the tip of the iceberg. So I know we gave you a lot of information. I know you're probably also looking for some answers to go with that is in our next few episodes, you know, and in the future, we're definitely going to get into how do you truly reduce insulin? Like, you know, for sure, I've got insulin resistance. What can we do? You know, everybody's different, whether they want to lose 10 vanity pounds or they want to lose a hundred pounds. You know, those are, those are two different people. They're going to have two different types of I guess you could say strategies to be able to implement that. So we're going to go into a lot of that behind the scenes with how the hormones interact with that. So I know 
if your head's spinning, my head's spinning. Yeah, <laughs> is right. we will, we'll, we'll definitely try to get into some of that nitty gritty. Yeah, right. I mean, this is a really complex issue. I think a very important one. I mean, you and I see all the time, everybody wants to lose weight. Everybody coming in the door wants to lose weight and they'll do just about anything to be able to accomplish that. And I think sometimes uh, some of the strategies and approaches people use just because out of maybe out of, you know, lack of knowledge or out of desperation, they end up, you know, making choices that in some ways actually, you know, either they don't get any results at all or it actually makes the situation worse. So on this episode and uh, the next subsequent uh, few episodes, we like to kind of dive into, into a little bit more of that and, hopefully prevent some people from, or maybe helping people make the best choices they can when it comes to this issue. All right. Till next time, I'm Dr. Mackey. And I'm Dr. Davidson. Thanks for listening to the Progression Health Podcast. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Progress Your Health Podcast. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, please give us a positive review on iTunes. This allows us to spread our message, grow our audience, and help more people around the world. For more information, visit our website at ProgressYourHealth.com.